scripture reading is from John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of, Jesus, of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for allowing us into your living rooms. Uh, to those who watch later on tablets or phones, it's so great to fellowship with you. Uh, again, we wish we were all here, but uh, God is doing remarkable things. So I uh, just want to let you know we are here live. Uh, that's not how some churches are doing it. It's just a decision we've made. And we want you to know we are following all CDC guidelines. Here's a picture of us earlier. Uh, you'll see us all with masks, and we are social distancing. Some of us are closer together because we are quarantined together, uh, but we are trying to abide by all the rules, and it uh, takes quite a lot of us, by the way, to do a live stream. We had to go from being a church to a television studio in a mere matter of weeks, and uh, just hats off to John Riley and all the team that have worked really hard. Hopefully this is getting better in quality and uh, we're excited about what God's doing and how he might use it in the future. So i uh, going to give you some announcements about connections, some of the cool things that are still going on in our fellowship. And uh, with some of the announcements this week by President Trump, looks like light might be at the end of the tunnel. I'm praying fervently that we're all here on Mother's Day. That's what I'm tracking to. So we'll see what God does. Anna just read for you from John chapter 13. And obviously I've been in this text all week. I've been meditating on it praying through it, and just hearing it again read out loud, I just feel like I owe a debt of gratitude to the Apostle John. I've been traveling with him since September uh, in his gospel, in this text, and he's an extraordinary man who lived an extraordinary life. Think about this. He was a fisherman. His father, Zebedee, was a fisherman. His grandfather was probably a fisherman. He was destined to live a very predictable life, 
until one day Jesus comes to him and says, John, drop your nets. I'm going to make you a fisher of men, whatever that might mean. And John follows Jesus, and this fisherman becomes a poet, a prophet, a preacher, a pillar in the early church. His words have comforted millions and brought millions to faith, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He gives us glimpses of the Savior that we wouldn't have, that no other writer gives us. Can you imagine what the Christian faith would be like if we didn't know that there's a God who weeps over us in our pain? The story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Or a God who, when we're weary and dirty, would stoop down and wash our feet. In a span of five days, John gives us two of the most famous foot washings in all of history. Now, we know this one at the Last Supper. We forget the one that happened the day before Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Remember back at the home of Simon, where Jesus was gathered with a group of individuals, and Mary took that spikenard, that perfume that was very costly, broke it and washed Jesus' feet. Now, that wasn't scandalous. In fact, that was to be expected. If you know anything culturally about foot washing, uh, in that day, people worked, walked on dirt roads. They wore sandals. Their feet were dirty. There were no pedicures in those days. So when you would come to the home of a person, uh, on the wall there would be a girdle, a servant's towel, and a basin at the bottom. And the servant, and usually it was the lowest ranking servant, like the rookie servant, who would wash everybody's feet. It was a sign of great hospitality. It was just something that was wonderful. So when Mary washed Jesus' feet, it was not scandalous. It was expected. Jesus was a man. She was a woman. He was a rabbi. He had cast seven demons out of her. It was extraordinary in that she took a year's worth of spikenard. When Jesus stood up at the Last Supper and washed his disciples' feet, that was scandalous. We know it was by the words of Peter who said, Lord, you will never, ever wash my feet. This can never happen culturally. Now, to really grasp the significance of what Jesus did that night by washing the disciples' feet, let's think about what the night was all about. It was Passover. Now, we call it the Last Supper. Uh, probably too many of us are looking at too many things on the internet. We're reading all this information about the pandemic. We're looking at funny quips and quotes and YouTube and all that. Um, I want to show you this meme of the Last Supper. So many of you have probably saw it. Very creative where this is what it would have looked like if they were in quarantine. Jesus by himself and everybody else on Zoom. I thought that was one of the more creative things I've seen in the pandemic. But this was the Passover. This is the last meal Jesus would ever have with the men who had followed him. The Jews had celebrated Passover for 1,500 years. It marked their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt into the Promised Land. If you go back and read Exodus 12, every aspect of the Passover, the killing of the lamb, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, was all pointing to what would happen the very next day when Jesus, the Lamb of God, would hang on a cross. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as he draws the analogy. He says, Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you might be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. 
Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That night, Jesus would celebrate the final Passover heaven would ever observe. And then remember, he would institute the new feast, what we call the Lord's Supper. What we celebrate in church, or you can do in your homes, where we take the matzah and the cup, and we do in remembrance of what Jesus did that night, that we are now the new community of faith. Just a beautiful scene. So the significance of this night was steep. It was Passover. It was also the last time Jesus would give final instructions to the men who would take his gospel into all the world. He would share a lot with them that night about the mission, about heaven, about the Holy Spirit. But in his brilliance, he would do something so unexpected. Now, I've been in a lot of pregame locker room talks where coaches come in and they fire up the team. They try and instill in us a sense that we have to win this game. I've been in halftime talks where we've been down 10 or 20 points where the coach is trying to rally the troops. I've heard visionary talks from some of the greatest leaders in our country. But nothing stands with the brilliance of what Jesus did that night when he took a basin and a towel and left a legacy and a pattern not only for churches, but for people to follow through the ages. In the next few minutes or so, I want to pull out four truths that I think are applicable to our lives from what Jesus did that night. There's probably a hundred. I want to pick out these four. But I want to tell you when I begin, these are not contrived. This was not some clever illustration Jesus drummed up so he could kind of teach his disciples something. This is at the heart of the character of Jesus and who he was and who he is. So if you're taking notes, the first truth is this. When Jesus took that basin and towel and washed his disciples' feet, he was showing them the full extent of his love. One of the other gospel writers says that when they began this supper, Jesus declared to the men, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this final Passover with you. Here, John tells us that he loved those, these 12, that God had given them. He loved them to the end. One translation says he showed the full extent of his love. Now, obviously, the cross would be the final logic of God's love, that Christ would die for us, that God himself would die for us. But I think John drew something from this foot washing that really no other disciple did. He gives us no details about the Last Supper whatsoever. He moves right to this foot washing. Many of you know John is the disciple of love, right? In his gospel, he says he's the disciple Jesus loved. He tells us in 1 John that God is love and we should love one another, that there's no greater love than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. There's extra biblical literature that tells us that in Ephesus, where John was the pastor at 90 years old, he couldn't walk anymore, they're carrying him, and he's saying, love one another, his final words. Why did John become the disciple of love? I think it's because of this foot washing. To really understand the power of it, we need to know the conversation that took place at the supper, and Luke gives us the details. The conversation that night was not about what Jesus was about to accomplish. It wasn't how the disciples could lay their lives down. They were arguing 
who would be the greatest. Now this was a common theme for these guys, right? Put 12 guys together who are uber competitive and they're going to jockey for position, right? They're guys. James and John had been in this argument earlier. In fact, they got their mother involved. Hey, can my boy sit on your right hand and on your left hand when the kingdom comes? Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's going to go through a trial. He's going to hang on a cross. And his followers are arguing, who's going to be the greatest? Uh, again, we've probably exhausted most of what's on Netflix because we're home a lot. But if you're looking for something to watch, there's a documentary called The Two Popes. It's really good. It's a story of Pope Benedict and then the Pope we have now, Pope Francis. Pope Benedict is a Pope who really loved the accoutrements of being Pope. He lived in the palace there in the Vatican. He wore all the garments. He traveled uh, famously. And then Pope Francis was different. He's kind of an ordinary guy. He lives in an apartment in the Vatican and uh, doesn't really surround himself with all the kind of riches that popes have. And there's a scene in the documentary where he's about to go into St. Peter's Square and be presented as pope for the first time. And he puts on, you know, all the garments. And then there's a scene where he puts on the papal shoes. I never knew this. They're actually red slippers. And the servant opens up the closet and there's like 30 pair of red slippers. And Francis looks at the servant and he said, the carnival is over. I'm going to wear my scuffed up shoes. Pope Francis gets what Jesus did that night. Jesus said, this isn't going to be the Gentiles who lorded over one another. The church isn't going to be a corporation. It's not going to be a hierarchy. Jesus said, whoever wants to be greatest among you is going to have to be least. Again, Peter gives us the insight that we really need to understand when he says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, he said, if I don't wash your feet, then you can have no part in me. I love Peter's answer. Okay, Lord, then my hands, my feet. Lord, just give me a bath. Could say a lot what you want about Peter, but he was all in. Peter wasn't lukewarm, he wasn't wishy-washy, he loved Jesus, even though he would betray him, even though he would do things that were contrary to what Jesus wanted. The disciples, as we know, were imperfect men. Thomas was a doubter, James and John wanted to call fire down from heaven. Peter put his foot in his mouth so many times after the great declaration of Caesarea that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, he makes a mistake and Jesus has to say, Satan, get behind me. He's going to cut off Malchus's ear in the garden. He's going to deny Jesus. By the way, it's one of the proofs that the Bible is the Bible. Because these men who would become leaders in the early church as they would write these documents would never put themselves in this kind of light. All their foil foibles and failures. Notice what Jesus said. You are clean because what I have done for you. Guys, we got to understand this. When I became a Christian, I was confused. I had said the prayer to accept Christ into my life. I felt this radical transformation. I knew I had passed from death to life. But I would go to church and some larger rallies and I would see people come to the altar and I thought, 
wow, God's doing great things. People are getting saved like I did. I was in an arena one time where the altar was just full. Hundreds of people had come forward. But I noticed something. Many of these people had large Bibles in their hands. They had Bibles where things were underlined. They had bags where they had brought books and tapes. And I thought, wow, something's strange here. Something's amiss. Found out later that a lot of these people struggle with the assurance of their salvation. And they would go forward anytime there was an altar call to receive Jesus Christ just to make sure they were Christians. Jesus tells us here that the born-again experience is a one-time event. That the transformation of a new heart and a new life is something that God does. It's radical. It's new. It's fresh. He takes our sins. He casts them as far as the east is from the west. And though our sins were like scarlet, he makes them white as snow. Now, Here's what's brilliant. Jesus tells us we're clean. He tells us we're loved. But we still get dirty. Each and every day, you and I, when we walk out into that world, our feet get dirty. Our minds get dirty. We look at billboards and advertisements where everything is sold with sex or fear. We live in a world that's so contrary to what we read in the, read in the Bible. And each and every day... These dirty thoughts, these dirty things, they come to our mind, they come to our being. When 2020 started, I was making some resolutions for the new year. One of the resolutions I made is, I was thinking about fasting sports for the month of January. Uh, not because I had to, but I thought, you know, the, the time it would unleash to me, either watching it on television or going to games. And I chickened out because the NFL playoffs were on. And then I thought, okay, maybe I'll start fresh in February. And then I started thinking about that and how it's cold out and March Madness was coming and the Masters and all. And now look where we are. You can't watch sports at all. And so in my mind, I feel like I failed God. I beat myself up. We could play that scenario out a hundred times with the things God wants us to do and we feel like we failed him. That night, Jesus assured these men, they were forgiven. They were clean. John writes in 1 John 1, 8, verse 9, and I think it came from this night. Uh, where he says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have this beautiful situation where we are clean. We have found favor with God. And then the dirt we pick up on the way, there is this confession and close account of God where he forgives us. More than removing dirt that night from the disciples' feet, Jesus was removing any doubt of his love for them and his love for you and me. We need to live in an understanding that God's love has been poured out for us one final and last time. We need to forget the things that we've done because God has forgotten them. And we need to live in the reality that he has made us clean. The second truth we pull from this is a spiritual discipline 
that I think is so very important. Many people call it appropriate smallness. Now, to get to what appropriate smallness is and to kind of live it out, we have to talk about sin for a minute. I want to ask you all a question. You know, as you read your Bible, what, what is the greatest sin that Scripture reveals to us? Uh, if you kind of look at the culture wars where the church argues with the culture, there's kind of a laundry list of sins, right? And yet few people would realize that the Bible's greatest sin is not murder or covetousness or any of the things we think about today, but it's actually pride. In Proverbs, when we look at the seven deadly sins, pride's listed first. Think about Satan, this angelic being, maybe an archangel created by God. Uh, Ezekiel tells us that the timbrel and the harps were built within him. He may have been the worship leader in heaven. The Bible says he was the anointed cherub until deceit was found within him. Isaiah lists the mind of Satan, the seven I wills. I will exalt my throne above heaven. I will be like God. And great was his fall. And then we have Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Daniel has a dream of a head of gold. He says, you are Babylon. You're this head of gold, this majestic kingdom. There's a scene one day when Nebuchadnezzar walks outside his palace and he's overlooking his kingdom and he says, this is the kingdom I, Nebuchadnezzar, have built. You know, we can get to that place. We can look at our lives and all the good fortune that has come and we can say, this is the life that I built. I could walk around this campus, 24 acres, and say, this is the kingdom that I have built. Probably the worst Example of pride in all the Bible, in my opinion, is King Saul. The first king of Israel, anointed with that horn of oil by Samuel. Humble in the beginning, he has this jealousy in his spirit. When the people sing this song after David kills Goliath, that Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. Now, that's a strong temptation to overcome. But the question is, why couldn't Saul and David have become the 11,000 club? Why couldn't they join together and just bask in all that God was doing? Instead, as you know, Saul took a spear and he wanted to put, put it through David and nail him to a wall. He chased him for most of his life. In 1 Samuel 15, 17, Samuel's told to go and to slay the Amalekites, every man, woman, child, beast, and even the king. He goes there in partial obedience to God and he spares the king and he spares some of the choice animals and such. Samuel comes and he says, Saul, what have you done? And Saul says, I haven't done this, the people have done it. Blames the people. And then Samuel says these words, 1 Samuel 15, 17. He says, when you were small in your own eyes, Saul, Things had gone well when you were small in your own eyes. Think about the contrast with Jesus who John tells us was the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. The word was with God. That everything was created through him. Jesus who had crafted the sun, the moon, and the stars. The potter at the wheel of the majestic mountains and rivers that you and I enjoy. Those hands are now bowing to human beings, washing gnarled feet. 
Think about Jesus' dress that day. He has a servant's girdle on. In Revelation, John would see him in all his glory, the, the eyes like flames of fire, the feet like burnished brass, the king of kings, lord of lords, and here he is in a servant's garment. One day every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to confess, and here Jesus is bowing before men, washing their feet. This was not a contrived act. This isn't a one-time experience. This is who Jesus was. This is what he had come to do. The Bible says after supper, he rose and then he descended. It's a picture of what he had done, leaving God and coming to humanity. Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this be mine be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. In other words, follow this example. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be with God or to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation long before the Last Supper. He took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. He was born in a manger. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above which is every name, that the name of Jesus, again, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on the earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. I take this ladder with me many times when I preach in other places. It's one of my great illustrations. How in life we're told to climb the ladder, and when we get to the top, all the good things will be there. I.e., people will serve us. So one of the things my wife and I watch on Netflix is The Crown. And when you watch The Crown, it's staggering how Queen Elizabeth and her family, they're served everywhere they go. Even at nighttime, people take off their clothes and put on their pajamas. And it's almost like the goal of life, if you climb the ladder and think about it, and it's true of all of us, it's almost like, you know, my goal in life is to get to a place where everybody serves me. Isn't that wonderful? I go to restaurants and maybe people clean my house. If I could only get to the place where everyone serves me, life would be grand. And then we look at Jesus who came down the ladder, born in poverty, washing disciples' feet. As one person wrote, God becomes the most humble being in the entire universe. Showing us that the way up truly is down and that the least would be greatest, that we can be the servant of all. Now, how do we apply it to our lives? Well, I think there's this, this spiritual discipline of appropriate smallness. How do we stay small in our own eyes? Heard a pastor tell a story of his father who was a businessman, a multimillionaire. That was his calling. He made money. He was very philanthropic to the church and other organizations. But this pastor would tell a story that the whole time he was growing up, that after dinner on Sunday, and dinner was usually 2 o'clock in the afternoon, his father would say, hey, who's going with me tonight? And the kids would raise their hands, sometimes their mother, and everybody knew what he was talking about. For 30 years, this businessman, every Sunday night at 6 o'clock, would go to the local nursing home with his guitar, play worship for those who were shut in, give them communion and a Bible study, and just spend time with them. 
No one ever knew. He was being small in his own eyes. I think of a new member that joined our church years ago who wanted to get involved. And he said, Pastor Bob, what can I do? And I said, what are your gifts? He said, well, I'm a, a doctor. I'm an MD. And at Calvary, we usually say to people, hey, if you want to get involved, why don't you start in the nursery? Because that's always where our greatest need is. It's kind of like a humbling thing we do. I don't know if it's right or wrong. And, you know, we really do want to put people in their giftedness. But often we would ask people to start there to see if they had humility. And so this doctor went down to the nursery and served there for a while. And uh, I never knew this, but found out later that while he was there changing babies, etc., that some of the women he was serving with had medical problems, which he got involved with and helped them out. And some of the babies that were down there had problems, and he helped them out. And here, in all his humility, being small in his own eyes, willing to go to the nursery, his gift actually made room for him. How can you, how can I, stay small in our own eyes? Something we're going to have to figure out. I think God gives us the opportunities. The question is, are we willing? Third truth I want to bring out is that Jesus demonstrates here a very tired and overused phrase, servant leadership. Now, servant leadership is true. Again, it's tired, it's overused, it's contrived. To really understand what servant leadership is, we have to look at it in two parts. Look at what Jesus says. He says, you call me master and Lord, and I am. Jesus was fully aware of his calling, and so should we. Jesus was the leader of the 12. There were only things Jesus could do. Only Jesus could turn the water and the wine. Only Jesus could cleanse the temple as he had just a few days prior. Jesus never sat down with the disciples and said, hey guys, what do you think we should do this week? Now, he would delegate to them. He gave them power over diseases. He sent 70 out. He sent the 12 out. But Jesus never had any doubt that he was the leader. There's an old saying, when everyone's in charge, no one's in charge. There was no doubt that Peter, James, and John were the leaders of the 12. Paul starts almost every epistle by saying, Paul, an apostle, he knew his calling. But behind the titles, the roles, and the responsibilities, there is this beatitude that John ends with that we need to heed. It's the last verse that we read today, verse 17, where it says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. There's a blessing, not if you know them, but if you do them. Now, I think servanthood's the key to life. It might be an oversimplification on my part, but I think it's the key to every aspect of life. Let's take marriage. Now, marriage has conflict, right? If you're in a relationship, there's going to be conflict. We're human beings. But if two people get up every day to serve each other, a marriage will be fruitful. So will a business, so will a church. You know, we've had a cultural value among our staff for almost 27 years. We have a lot of imperfections on our staff. We don't do everything right. This is one we almost all hold. That each and every one of us, if something needs to be done, will go and do it outside of our roles. This past Halloween, we had a 
uh, trunk or treat. And the year before, we had about 150 people, so we said, wow, that's, that's, that's a lot of people and families are here, so we asked our whole staff to be here. Well, lo and behold, it was a warm night, and 850 people came on our campus. We were all scurrying around, emptying trash, and I'm looking around, and I jumped in my car, and I drove to Target and bought like $300 of candy because I thought we were going to run out. I can think of times where I was in a pinch where our staff would run and do things for me. This is servant leadership. You see, what was overlooked that night was supper had ended, and no one had washed anyone's feet. Anyone could have and should have washed each other's feet, but no one did. Jesus could have delegated the task. Peter would have done it. John would have done it. Any of them would have done it that night. Servant leadership is when the leader realizes people aren't a replaceable cog in a system. But everyone you serve is someone's daughter, someone's son. Where this really comes together is when we look at peers. You see, the leader is always going to delegate tasks and the followers are always going to do them. But how do we live as peers? How do the 12 disciples live with each other? And again, it's servant leadership. One of the beautiful things I appreciate about Calvary is, you know, when I bring in guest speakers that are in the Calvary network, uh, we almost never talk about an honorarium, how much we're going to pay them. We always pay average or better uh, for the tasks they're going to do. We usually always stay at each other's homes. And many of the guys that come in a little earlier say, hey, Bob, is there anything to do on your property? Some of these guys have taken down trees for me, helped me mulch. I've done things for them. Again, Calvary's not perfect, but it's the closest thing I've seen to a brotherhood in the larger church. God has called us to serve. None of us like it. None of us want to do it. But if we'll take the basin and the towel and serve those in our inner circles, I believe life will flourish. And I've watched God do it for 37 years. My final takeaway from this foot washing is a direct lift from Andy Crouch's book, Strong and Weak. Andy, more than anybody on the planet right now, understands the paradox of power and what we're talking about. Andy loves to write about flourishing. He believes human beings were put on the earth in the image of God to flourish, to take our gifts, our talents, and to live out a purpose in life. And Andy's idea of flourishing is to become the very best version of you. And he lists four ways that we can flourish, and it's a paradox. It's not holding on to power, it's the giving away of power, and I'll go through this in just a couple minutes. Number one, Andy says, we need to be vulnerable. Now, we can't always show who we are at all times, but there has to be times where we're vulnerable. Jesus with the 12 that night became very vulnerable when he said, guys, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this meal. Laid all his cards on the table when he washed their feet. And then when he was in Gethsemane, asking them to pray with him. His vulnerability that he was alone and he needed comfort. 
Second thing Andy talks about is accountability. Now, sometimes people talk about accountability groups, and that's good, and we all need accountability. Notice the accountability here. When Jesus talks about how he had come from God and he was going to God. In verse 16, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. In his whole entire ministry, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, talked about his accountability unto God. I only do the things the Father says. Then there's confrontation. The fact that we're servant leaders and we're walking in appropriate smallness and humility doesn't mean we don't tell the truth. Again, a few days earlier, Jesus had cleansed the temple for a second time. And at dinner, he had confronted Judas, who would betray him. Then Andy talks about delegation. Those of us in places of authority have to give away our power, as Jesus did to the 12 and to the 70. And then finally, the spiritual disciplines of solitude, silence, and fasting. Please listen to this. These three disciplines, Andy says, opens up Christ's followers to what he calls risk. Here's the risk. And maybe you're experiencing in the quarantine. The risk is that when you're silent, alone, and depriving yourself of food, you discover who you really are. The things that we normally block out by running around and, you know, doing things and having music and TV on, all of a sudden these things bubble up. Now, it's a good thing. We find out we're dirty. There's ugly things, but we deal with them. We confess them, and we move on. This is the paradox of flourishing. The releasing of power, the releasing of gifts, coming to grips with who we really are, that we might go down, that God would exalt us in due time. Jesus washing the disciples' feet is one of the greatest examples the world has ever seen of true humility. The question is, are we willing to descend into greatness? Are we willing to take a basin and a towel in any setting God would have us in, and follow the footsteps of Jesus. Can I tell you all this? You already know it. It's not an easy thing to do. I would rather have someone wash my feet than wash someone else's feet. I would rather have someone cook me a meal than cook them a meal, and I can go on and on and on. As we live our week, as we continue our Christian life, I pray that we would listen to the promptings of God. You would be surprised how many times God shows up in a day, in a week, in a year where he said, this is your time. This is where you can be small in your own eyes. This is where you can lift someone up through service or give away power. This is where you can know the full extent of my love by showing it to someone else. Father, we thank you for your word this day. We thank you for the demonstration of the humility of Jesus. God, you are the most humble being in the universe. May we learn and grow from all that you have done. 
You have washed our feet. We are clean in you. And we are ever grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.